0: My name is Jocelyn McClure, I'm here today with...
1: Will Sloan.
0: And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Laurel and Hardy, our favorite comedic duo that are not the Three Stooges. Because there's three of them.
1: <laughs> I mean, could you imagine? Okay, you got Laurel and Hardy. You got, you got a funny fat guy. You got a funny thin guy. But then imagine... You had a third guy who's not funny and really doesn't do anything. How
0: dare you talk about Larry that way?
1: (laughs) I'm kidding. I love Larry. Larry is a god. But yes, we are talking about Laurel and Hardy today. The quintessential comedy duo, right? Like, these are the OGs. These are the ones who, in terms of cinematic comedy duos, they set the template. They're the ones that all others since are indebted to.
0: And I brought up the Three Stooges at the beginning there because, unlike them, I... Did not watch Laurel and Hardy shorts growing up, or feature films. I
1: had some relationship to them growing up, but not a lot. When I was a kid, there were two feature films that were in the public domain that you would see on DVD racks everywhere. Every DVD rack that had public domain movies had The Flying Deuces and utopia also known as Atoll oh, K. Oh god their last movie <laughs> so one of the very first dvds i ever owned was a double feature of those movies i certainly liked the flying deuces but it was very hard to find laurel and hardy because whoever owned the rights to most of their best films like the music box or sons of the desert or all those classics just wasn't doing anything with them so throughout my whole childhood throughout most of my teenage years Like, those movies were just not available. Uh, I I mean, some of their silent films were released on DVD on a series of discs called uh, the Lost films of Laurel and Hardy, but th- but the classic stuff I didn't see until much later. So I also didn't have the same kind of relationship with them growing up.
0: What's fascinating about them is that they were very popular worldwide for a number of different reasons. I watched a documentary on their films and they pointed out that they, early on with sound, they would record phonetically a uh, version speaking multiple languages and that allowed it to travel. The fact that, you know, they started it in Uh, The silence, they were very physical, and they were very iconic as actors. When you think of Laurel and Hardy, even if you're not that familiar with their movies, you know exactly what they look like. It's the big guy, and it's the skinny guy.
1: That image is so iconic and transcendent, and again, set the template for... Every comedy duo or most comedy duos that followed. As for Laurel and Hardy themselves, there's something so instantly lovable about them just as screen presences. I also watched a documentary about them this week and I saw Jerry Lewis say in it, I saw them for the first time when I was five years old and I immediately knew they were my friends. That's not the kind of relationship you necessarily have with Martin and Lewis or the Three Stooges. Like Laurel and Hardy are gentle and childlike and they seem very innocent. I mean, they're often getting hurt, but unlike the Three Stooges, they're not sadists. They don't take pleasure in meeting out punishment. There are many, many scenes where one of them will smack the other, but it always seems like it's out of some sense of regrettable obligation.
0: Laurel and Hardy movies, their comedy is very interesting because you can clip out certain sections and be like, oh, this is, you know, classic style slapstick, but there's also like a lot of cringe, kind of like, oh man, That hurts because if you like them, when you watch them with their shorts, you feel pain of the things that are happening to them. And that also makes you laugh out of like almost being uncomfortable of watching it play out. Another
1: reason why they're so beloved is because I think more than any other comedy team, they seem like they love each other in a very uncomplicated way. Like there seems like they're obviously they're always fighting, but there's something about the bond they have. I mean, the Three Stooges are kind of similar where they're constantly hurting each other and they're causing disasters. But there's a sense that if they weren't together, they would be worse off. With Laurel and Hardy, they also seem so evenly matched. Like, I know that Hardy is the smart one, kind of. and
0: Well, he's the boisterous and the loud one. He's the one who makes the decisions that usually lead them down the wrong path. And Stan is the skinny, dumb one. (laughs) Sheepish expression on his face at all times. But with
1: Martin and Lewis, there's an edge. It's more like a big brother, little brother relationship. With Abbott and Costello, I don't quite know what their relationship is because they seem to actually hate each other, but...
0: (laughs) That's the joke. I mean, with Abbott
1: and Costello, I think the whole thing is the verbal pyrotechnics they were able to do, you know, just the incredible time. Yeah,
0: all the old vaudeville routines he recycled. Yeah, ex-
1: exactly. But, you know, they, they did it with uh, just kind of incredible Panache. verbal dexterity. But with Laurel and Hardy, there's the sense that, like, they really do need each other and things would be worse off if they weren't together. And in a weird way, they are always kind of looking out for each other.
0: Well, I think that's important. Especially when you consider how long they lasted together. If it was too guys who just hated each other i don't think you would have the kind of fan base that they did that you know when they went on tour in europe everyone had laurel and hardy masks like we've been saying since the beginning they are lovable figures and that's why they were so important to people that watched them at the time and why i feel like a lot of their comedy has been superseded by you know the three stooges or i mean i was gonna say uh, jerry lewis and dean martin but nah, not that many people are watching their movies anymore either
1: well Well, with Laurel and Hardy, even though there's all that slapstick, all that kind of boisterous like pie in the face stuff, there's also a lot of delicacy. So much of the comedy in those films are like the silence, the notes they don't play. There's incredible confidence in their timing. They're not afraid of silence. Like if they do a reaction shot, it is always the longest and most drawn out reaction shot.
0: That's what I noticed watching it, all these shorts in quick succession, especially their feature films, is that they have these routines down to like an exact science that out of their context, it may seem a little bit odd, but it's the effect of it building on top of each other that makes it really, really funny. And I mean, you know, Stan Laurel, and a uh, good old babe himself, Oliver Hardy. They are master physical comedians at what they do. And they do it in a way that makes it seem so easy. <laughs> That's where the comedy comes from.
1: Well, in terms of that cumulative impact, something that you see in film after film is some disaster will befall someone. Some indignity will befall someone. Like somebody will have a pie in their face. And then, first of all, they'll do as i said the longest reaction shot anyone has ever done they'll like they'll like wipe the pie off their face then they'll look into the camera and go "Hmm," for like five seconds and then they'll wipe it some more and then and then it launches a chain of events that's like welp i don't want to have to do this but it is a matter of honor that i must now pick up a pie and hit you in the face and then you know after he's thrown the pie then then whoever the pie lands on Then also, just as a matter of honor, that's the common shared morality in these movies, just as a matter of honor. Welp, uh, now I have to throw a pie. Everybody gets their own, like, long five second reaction shot before they throw a pie pretty soon like half the short just becomes about this really stupid uh, argument that's happening between these characters
0: well that's how all wars start will that's how all wars start
1: (laughs) so so much of the comedy isn't even about like the pie landing it's about the build up to the pie landing and then and then the face after the guy gets the pie I think that comes back to with the three stooges like the build up is also funny but like what's really funny is when like the pie lands in the guy's face there's something like the three stooges movies are pornographically focused on the violence whereas with these guys a lot of it is just in like how long how long can you bear for us to hold this reaction shot before the pie gets through? Yeah,
0: i mean the three stooges is often one of the guys screaming in agony and that's what's funny <laughs>
1: yeah that's true
0: and there is a little bit of that in the laurel and hardy films but it's also pain as embarrassment more than it is kind of like oh my god i can't believe this is actually happening to them also
1: i just want to say too that for movies that have so much slapstick in them a lot of the appeal of them is in the stuff that isn't necessarily ha ha funny there's a lot of delicacy to laurel and hardy so whenever hardy is drinking from a glass He'll always pick up the glass in the daintiest way possible and he'll always have his pinky finger extended like a real Southern gentleman. There are so many moments in their movies where they'll be doing something and then they'll just sort of break into a little soft shoe number or just the way that Hardy like fiddles with his tie or stuff like that so much of the magic of the films and so much of what you love about the characters it are just those those little little kind of beautiful character details it's
0: all about the precision of them as performers like you wouldn't call the three stooges uh very precise in their stuff it's about the sound of the slap as it hits Shemp in the face, probably adding up to the stroke he's about to have in a couple
1: of years. I'll tell you what's precise. What's precise is uh, poking Larry in the eye that many times and always aim- aiming your finger is just above his eyes. So it doesn't actually hit him. <laughs> Not so hard! <laughs> uh, Joe Besser. So, just a little bit about Laurel and Hardy's biography. Uh, a young Stanley Jefferson was born in 1895 in a small town in northern England. His father was a theater manager and playwright, so Stan Lee followed into that industry. He became a musical comedian, and in vaudeville, he was the understudy to a young Charlie Chaplin, believe it or not.
0: Someone said in the doc I watched, nobody liked Chaplin. Everybody liked his understudy, though. Could do everything that Chaplin could.
1: I guess he kind of proved that, didn't he? So he traveled with Chaplin in that comedy troupe to America, and after Chaplin was lured away to the film industry, Stan Laurel, as he was renamed, uh, actually imitated him for a time in a vaudeville troupe called the keystone trio with where there were other performers who were imitating chester conklin and mabel normand oh my god <laughs> wouldn't you love to travel back in time and see that act
0: yeah and i'd be sitting there and be like "Ooh, that's terrible meanwhile
1: in another section of the world a young oliver hardy was born in georgia in 1892 and he joined the film industry very early in florida at first and both men kicked around the film industry for over a decade before they became Laurel and Hardy. Just another funny thing about Chaplin impersonators you can see Hardy as the villain in a series of shorts starring a guy named Billy West, who was a Charlie Chaplin impersonator. Ah,
0: the best Charlie Chaplin impersonator. Thank
1: you very much. Yeah, that's right. He made a whole series of movies where he just, like, actually just played the little tramp. He had the he had the hat, he had the mustache. Now, do
0: you think they fooled anybody? Like, oh, I'm seeing a new Charlie Chaplin. Wait a minute. You know,
1: I don't think so, but I think, I think what it was was there were a lot of theaters. Like, the, the Chaplin movies were probably, like, pretty expensive for theaters to rent, so there were probably a lot of theaters for They were like, yeah, you know, that's good enough.
0: We can't get to the new Three Stooges short. Hey, what's this? Crazy Nights. That's just as good. Anyone who hasn't listened to our show before is going to be like, what the heck are they talking about?
1: Crazy Nights, folks. Look it up. One of the great films of all time.
0: I mean, you get the ultimate Laurel and Hardy villain in it, Billy Gilbert and Shem.
1: That's true. (laughs) Laurel and Hardy came together by chance. In 1921, they both appeared in a movie called The Lucky Dog, which was a vehicle for Stan Laurel. Stan Laurel was kind of a journeyman comedy star for about 10 years before Laurel and Hardy. He was always playing a brash, young, energetic man, sort of a Harold Lloyd type, I guess you could say. Hardy is in that movie just in a couple of scenes playing a hoodlum. So they're in that one movie in the early 20s. But then for years, they don't appear together. And then in 1926, Laurel signs with the Hal Roach Studios. Oh, boy. Uh, And and that's the studio that would also make The Little Rascals and a bunch of other comedy shorts. You said, oh, boy, is Hal Roach probably... No,
0: but he just didn't pay them anything. (laughs) Like, they got a flat rate even when they became megastars. Oh,
1: that's sad to hear. Well, anyway, they did have creative freedom. That's
0: true. I mean, Stan was the creative head of the duo, while Hardy kind of just followed along and did what was asked of him. Kind of like me. (laughs) Yeah, that's right.
1: (laughs) So Laurel joins Hal Roach in nineteen twenty-six and one of the contract players at the Hal Roach studios is Babe Hardy. And then in nineteen twenty-seven they appear together in a movie, and then they appear together in another movie for a little more screen time, and then in another movie, and then by the end of nineteen twenty-seven they were Laurel and Hardy. And we
0: should point out that when we say movie, we don't necessarily mean feature films. We usually mean like 20 to 30 minute short subjects. That's right.
1: So we watched one of their silent films this week. One of their most famous silent films called Battle of the Century. What happens in this film, Justin? Well,
0: it starts off with Stan in the boxing ring. I don't know why he's there. It seems like a bad idea. But some shenanigans happen where he is supposed to win a match. They'll win, uh, I think it's $100 if they win, $5 if they lose. That's a difference of $1,500. You gotta see the title card to get the jokes, folks. But but he does lose. And then, you know, it feels like another short starts where <laughs> yeah. Oliver Hardy takes a insurance policy out on Stan. So one of them is trying to seemingly kill the other. <laughs> yes,
1: because <laughs> if he gets in an accident, they'll make a lot of money. So they keep they keep throwing banana peels around, hoping that Stan will trip on it. But instead, a, a bunch of other people trip on
0: this it. short is most famous for is the last 10 minutes are dedicated to a gigantic pie fight.
1: Somebody throws a pie. At somebody, and then the other person throws a pie and it misses that person and hits another person. Then that person grabs a pie throws it, hits a different person.
0: I was laughing through the entire thing, especially when a character we've never seen before appears and he's like, I'm the mayor, you must
1: stop this! <laughs> that is so funny. And then they throw a pie at the mayor. It doesn't even matter.
0: I mean, that's literally like a Simpsons <laughs> joke.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that. That's amazing. It's
0: like the ending of Penn and Teller, uh, what is it, Die? I don't remember what
1: they're- Get killed, Penn and Teller get yeah, killed.
0: Yeah, where suddenly everyone is killing themselves. It's a chain reaction, but in this case, not of suicide, but of pie fighting. There are a
1: number of good Laurel and Hardy shorts I'm a fan of one called Liberty which is them on a construction site kind of like Harold Lloyd a lot of uh, thrill comedy in that one but I think that this is these are comedians who benefited from sound don't you oh
0: absolutely their voices match the kind of personas they were portraying on screen. Stan Laurel is has kind of like a flat accent and he's, you know, talks slow, is a little bit out of it, while Hardy is loud and boisterous and trying to take control even though it's always slipping out from his fingers.
1: Also, there's something funny about their accents where they, they, they're both doing accents that sound like guys trying to hide their accents. So Laurel comes from England, but instead he's doing this, this very slow and measured voice that seems like an attempt to do an American voice. And Hardy comes from the Deep South, and he has a little bit of a southern twang in his voice, but not, not completely. So there's something just a little bit weird and off about the sounds of their voices. And then on top of that, again, the silence is so important in Laurel and Hardy.
0: Even though their voices match them perfectly, they don't become verbal comedians because they have been trained in the art of, you know, silent films, vaudeville. And so you get these kind of pauses between any of their kind of verbal jokes of just long stretches of very funny silence as something, plays out which is the core of their most famous short the music box
1: right this one won the academy award for best short film
0: rightfully so and
1: it is about as funny as a movie gets it is two guys trying to move a piano up a gigantic staircase
0: and it's that perfect joke setup and you just see every possible variation of the joke. And what's funny about it is that every time that piano goes down the stairs, you watch it go down every step.
1: The part that really made me laugh is, and I could like, I could literally just tell every single joke that happens in this movie, when they finally get the piano to the top of the staircase, and then the guy comes by and he says something like, guys, didn't you realize the road turns and it goes up here? Like, You didn't have to drag the piano all the way up. And they're like, hmm, he's right. And then they take the piano all the way down and put it Back in their truck and drive it up.
0: And not only is there like moments of silence, but this short is so funny because it's a piano. So every time it goes down the stairs, like (laughs) in this ocean of silence.
1: And then finally, like as if that's not enough, they finally get to the mansion And then shenanigans continue to ensue there. Yeah,
0: there. I mean, Billy Gilbert, who I previously mentioned, also shows up in the short. And he's very funny as the Margaret Dumont, but just much angrier. (laughs) Like, how dare you ask me to go around?
1: It also has that very charming scene where they do a little dance in the middle of the house. Like in the middle of all this really raucous slapstick, the movie just kind of pauses for them to have this graceful little moment. It's
0: beautiful stuff. And
1: something else I like about these guys is that obviously hardy is the fat one but there aren't that many jokes about how fat he is and in fact he's constantly doing things that are just incredibly graceful and balletic like a beautiful little soft shoe number he's
0: also always taking uh giant pratfalls in bodies of water yes they love going back to that well
1: Uh, what else do we watch i mean the two of us there's a beautiful blu-ray set that came out just a year or two ago that has a bunch of restored Laurel and Hardy films that look like a million dollars. And I think we just kind of watched a lot of those, right? Yeah,
0: it's a Kit Parker Blu-ray. It's a four-disc set. It has like commentary on every short. It also has a bunch of feature films. And I know that we watched Sons of the Desert.
1: Which is probably their best regarded feature film. It's like barely 60 minutes long. And I think it is so pure. It is so just uncompromising it's also like bone simple
0: and also dry (laughs) i mean desert's right there in the title but a lot of the jokes are laurel eats a wax apple for 10 minutes (laughs)
1: yes that's right
0: and he just like takes a bite makes a face looks at the apple kind of shrugs, takes another bite, does another face, and it just gets funnier. And then the punchline is someone going, that's where all our wax apples have been going. So I
1: had to really re- restrain myself from using the term anti-comedy on this episode because, like, they're Laurel and Hardy. Like,
0: they're comedy. You like- <laughs> look
1: up comedy in the dictionary and you'll find a picture of Laurel and Hardy. However, that wax-eating scene... I mean, that that could be a Neil Hamburger bit or something.
0: But, like, if you saw it on stage, it's all about the precision of what he's doing. Like, if Chris Katana had done that wax apple bit, it'd be too big, wouldn't be that funny. But there's just that sheepishness to Laurel and the way he kind of reacts to it that he's not offended. It's not like, oh, God, this tastes bad. It's not a big reaction. It's balletic in the way that it's presented. I mean, I posted a clip on Twitter of him, like, following his wife out the door and It's just like 30 seconds of him like taking his hat off, opening the door, putting his hat down, going out, coming back in. And it's just the way that it plays out that makes it so funny. Yeah,
1: I mean, for guys who are known for big, raucous slapstick... Again, so many of their films, so, so much of their comedy is just these, like, really drawn out, really delicate moments. And then when the big slapstick moments happen, they really pop.
0: I mean, we also watched uh, County Hospital, which, I mean, it's big moment. It's so funny. Hardy screaming in agony <laughs> as he's hoisted into the air. Yeah,
1: I, I found County Hospital very moving. It's Hardy's got his leg broken. He's in a cast in the hospital. And then Laurel comes and you know, there's just this kind of feeling that's like, yeah, these are the only two guys for each other. They're made for each other. They will follow each other everywhere, and they are they are constantly causing each other pain and misery. They're they're, they're constantly dropping things on each other and making each other fall out of windows. But but like. There's there's nobody else for them. They they might die if they were alone. So at least they're just getting hurt. You
0: know, they never really attack each other in anger that much in their most famous work. No. And I think that makes a big difference. Like, Hardy often gets smashed in the head with vases by other characters, but not usually from Laurel.
1: When it happens, it'll always be a big buildup to it. It'll be like, Hardy will, again, do that huge, drawn-out reaction shot. And then he'll, like, roll up his sleeve and he'll huff, and he'll puff, and he'll get into position, and and then he'll slap him. As if it's like, welp, I have to do this. I have to mete out this punishment. You know I have to do it. I take no pleasure. He doesn't enjoy it either. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So,
0: of course, this is the important cinema club, so we did watch their last movie, (laughs) A Toll cat. Yeah,
1: so, I mean, I've seen this movie before. There's a beautiful Blu-ray that BFI put out that's a restoration of the complete 98-minute cut, but Instead, at Justin's suggestion, I revisited this movie on a uh, fan edit that's on YouTube.
0: Yeah, so they cut out any scenes that didn't really feature Laurel and Hardy. They removed narration from the film, and they also put a new musical soundtrack under most of it. I should say, though, the reason that, you know, they got to a Tolkien, which was a mostly French production is that they left Hal Roach in 1939 because they were being paid garbage a flat rate and they ended up working for MGM and Fox where they were treated like garbage and Stan couldn't write the material they were just given scripts and inserted into them and yeah it doesn't really work I mean they're you know solid performers but they don't own the screen like they do in their short work or their early feature films
1: also those 1940s movies are so conventional you look at a movie like Sons of the Desert. And it is so uncompromising. Sons of the Desert is a movie about two guys who want to go to this big convention for their fraternal organization, but their wives don't want them to go. So they have to make up an excuse. And pretend they're going somewhere else. And then they come back and they have to hide the fact that they went to this thing they weren't supposed to go to. That's it.
0: It's just so simple. Yeah. Like there's no love interest that, you know, follows the wacky guys or anything like that
1: because you don't need it. And there's no attempt to make them, quote unquote, sympathetic. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're dumbbells who are doing something they shouldn't be doing. And you kind of root for them, but you also know that they deserve their punishment.
0: Because it's so pure. So you kind of want to see them get punished as well. That's why it works as well as it does. And then there
1: are a million shorts. I just watched one called Birthmarks, where half the short is them on a train trying to sleep in the same bed. And they're constantly just ruffling around, trying to manipulate their bodies such that they can both sleep in the bed. And that's half the short. So good.
0: (laughs) But now we're talking about their last movie, which came about because after kind of terrible period where they were acting in a bunch of studio comedies, they went on tour. They were very popular. They did their stage show. And what ended up happening is that an international production said, hey, come on
1: down. I mean, the main thing you need to know about Atoll K is both of them were in very poor health.
0: Oh, boy, they look terrible in the Stan movie.
1: Stan Laurel looks like a skeleton, just incredibly skinny and old. And Oliver Hardy looks like well, the opposite of a skeleton. He looks uh, obese, frankly. The, the two of them look like they're having a tough time. But then just on top of that, the production values are just really bad.
0: It took 12 months to shoot K. Okay. There's like four directors that worked on it. So
1: yeah, on this viewing, we watched it on this 30 minutes shorter fan edit that some fan had made, changing the music, trying to make it look more like a Hal Roach movie. And I think I think the fan edit is... Like they did a good job on it. It looks very convincing and it's probably better, frankly, than the actual released version. I
0: mean, they're doing a lot of funny bits in it. Like there's a lot of stuff, like compare this to the last Abbott and Costello film that we watched.
1: Definitely better than that. But I mean, there's still something that's off. I mean, some of the bits are kind of good, but also they're just filmed in such a cheap looking way. The production is off. Like, You're looking at two old men outside... Uh, shot by a guy who doesn't know how to shoot them it, f- it has a bit of that feel of the th- the cartoons the three stooges were making in the 60s hey
0: hey hey it's better than the three stooges live action cartoon bumpers <laughs> with curly joe dorita
1: it-, it is better but it's it's still pretty hard to watch nevertheless i did feel some affection for Atul K because yeah they are even in their beleaguered and, and very ill state They are still, like, Cracker Jack performers. They still know how to deliver. They still know how to do those characters.
0: And, yeah, I mean, again, the movie's also too big. Like, it turns into kind of like a duck soup thing at the end. And you're like, no, not not Laurel and Hardy. This isn't their
1: kind of movie. And still, even in the fan edit, too many characters.
0: Oh, way too many characters. Yeah, I think they're just, like, international performers that had to appear in the film. So, you know, it wasn't as bad as I expected. I found it uh, pleasant. And it was nice hanging out with them one last time, even though, boy, they did not look in good health. So,
1: yeah, that was their final film. And after that, they did a mostly successful tour of Europe, uh, which was chronicled in the recent fictional film Stan and Ollie with Steve Coogan and John C. Riley. Fun movie. Uh, Yeah, I liked it very much. But, you know, they were old And, uh, there were other comedy teams and, uh, that's, that's just what happens. You know, you, you get old, but, uh, we still have the memories. Do people still watch Laurel and Hardy shorts? Probably not as much as they should. And I think a lot of that just has to do with the fact that they haven't really been that available, Mm -hmm.
0: but you know, go to YouTube and you'll see thousands of comments of people being like, this is what comedy used to be. You know
1: what? They're right. They're
0: right. Yeah. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Well, that
1: was another fine mess you got me into, Justin. Oh, okay. Do the Laurel and Hardy music. (laughs) There we go. Wait, wait. For the rest of the podcast, I'll do just that generic Hal Roach music that's constantly playing underneath.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. You do a bit and I'll just layer it under the rest of the show.
1: (laughs) I I, I could keep it up for the next, like, 10 hours.
0: (laughs) Hello, Justin and Will, the first letter goes. I remember an episode where you rightfully poked fun at screenwriting books like Save the Cat. Recently, I've been interested in reading more perspectives on screenwriting, but so many books on the subject are how-to manuals on constructing something familiar and palatable. Are there any worthwhile books related to screenwriting that value any sort of experimentation? Love the show. It's my favorite film podcast, Ferris. We've
1: recorded so many podcasts over the years. We're constantly shooting our mouths off on these podcasts. There is part of me that would definitely stand by making fun of those screenwriting books like Robert McKee, you know, that kind of thing. But then there's also part of me that would say... If you're studying screenwriting, it would probably be helpful to read one of those things just to, like, know what the basic form is, to know what a what a very familiar play screenplay looks like. And from that, once you've internalized that structure, you'll really be able to subvert it.
0: Well, what I would say is watch a bunch of movies and also read some screenplays if you want to know how they're formatted and how they're structured. I think that's probably more important than reading, like, the Robert McKay book, which, Here's the thing. If you're writing a book about how to do something, you better have done that thing. And Robert McKee never wrote any screenplays.
1: Yeah, sad but true.
0: And so it's like, what are you doing? That's the thing I never understood about those kind of books. So thank you very much for that letter. Our next one goes, guys. Hey, not even a hey, guys. I started listening to your podcast around your 250th show, and I thought I would write. I enjoy listening to the two of you enthusiastically talk about movies. There are times I disagree with your critical takes. Well, let's be honest. We're never wrong, right, Will?
1: I've never been wrong.
0: Thanks to you, I have explored films and directors to a degree I may not have otherwise considered. From Abel Ferreira to Johnny Toe and Ringo Lamb to Edgar Ulmer and committing to watching a second A Pitchapong movie. <laughs> I look forward to listening to episodes where you cover Bunuel and Tati. Uh, he mentions that he skips around a lot, so it's in there. I
1: think we did We did both Boonwell and Tati, didn't we? We
0: did. Now, I'm reading this letter because it's very funny, because he asked something that I would have never guessed would have been requested as much as it is. Can you take a guess, Will? I don't know. While looking around on Letterboxd, I came across a reference to Jean Relais, and that sounds like a director you would probably talk about, but might not have yet. Alternatively, I don't know if you have ever talked about Tony Jaw yet either. Anyway, thanks for doing the podcast, Ryan. Well,
1: here's something I can promise you. Next Shocktober, Jean Roland.
0: Promise. We
1: promise. As as (laughs) I embarrassingly had to admit... A few weeks ago, until a few weeks ago, I had never seen a genre laugh film. Did you watch one since then? I watched The Nude Vampire, yes, and I enjoyed it. It was fun. All right.
0: Well, thank you very much for that letter, Ryan. And I hope you enjoy the Bunuel and Tati episodes that we did many, many years ago.
1: <laughs> I can't remember what I said on them. Who knows what I would stand by?
0: And our uh, letters continue. That's just a letter pile today. Undercover Christmas movies. Hello, Important Cinema Club. It's that time of year again. The time to discuss if Die Art is a Christmas movie or not. Yes, it is. Moving on. Luckily, we seem to be close to selling that debate. I mean, I just did. So now I would like to ignite a different controversy. Is The Night of the Hunter a Christmas movie? I have to confess that I have not seen the film in my 40-some years on this planet and was awestruck when the movie makes a hard turn and joins the It's a Wonderful Life extended cinematic universe for the final act. What would your picks be as professional film critics and a professional programmer for non-canonical Christmas movie marathon? Movies that don't usually have the traits or settings of Christmas movies that everybody watches every year but would be a good fit for the season. Thank you so much for your fantastic podcast for all the hard work you put into it. Kind regards, Vince. Well, Vince, do I have some news for you. You know who's a big fan of movies that take place during Christmas? This guy. I'm pointing to myself. I mean, Will has been subject to some of the little zines I did many years ago about Christmas movies. I
1: believe I've contributed to one or two of them as well. Oh,
0: yeah, that's right. You wrote about The Passion of Carol. That's right.
1: I wrote about the classic Christmas porn film, The Passions of Carol by Sean Costello. And there are there are 10 people in the world who have that zine, and maybe half of them have thrown it out. Uh, so it's very rare. I think
0: Jackie Chan is on the cover, isn't he? He uh, is, Wearing yes. like a Santa Claus hat.
1: Okay. OK, there's a funny story about that zine. I remember you said, oh, yeah, I'm going to do a zine. And I said, can I write about the passions of Carol for it? And you said, absolutely. Just send it to me next week. And I remember I sent it to you. Uh, apparently, you had forgotten you were going to do a zine. Uh-oh. And so then you you spent like the next two days watching a bunch of Christmas movies and writing about them to put out a zine because you felt bad. Because of... <laughs>
0: did I say that? Yeah, you
1: did. <laughs> so. <laughs>
0: Yeah, because I was like, just 10 people are going to read this. It's not worth it. I like those zines. It's the ones that uh, it was one piece of paper folded in a way that it made a little booklet so I didn't have to staple it. Yeah,
1: no, they were great. They're wonderful collector's items. And who knows? Maybe we'll revive one of them one day.
0: It'd be really easy to throw in like a package of uh, something that we sell. Available at goldninjavideo.com. And as far as Night of the Hunter being a Christmas movie, now this is just a rule that I go with If the film is not completely set during Christmas, I don't consider it a Christmas movie.
1: I think that's a fair and reasonable rule, but the letter writer has asked for us to select some non-canonical or unlikely Christmas movies, so I am going to pick 1976's Bruce Lee Fights Back from the Grave. For those who don't know it, it is a Korean martial arts film, I think the original title was something like The Stranger from Korea, and American distributor Aquarius Releasing bought it, and they added a 30-second scene at the beginning of the movie where Bruce Lee pops up from his grave, and the rest of the movie just continues as normal. And so they were able to market it under the title Bruce Lee Fights Back from the Grave. But what's really important for our purposes— is that halfway through the movie, the leading man, Jun Chong, accidentally stumbles upon a Christmas parade on Hollywood Boulevard, and he just stands there for about five minutes watching it. It's clearly in the movie because they wanted to pad the movie with whatever they could pad it with, you know, just to get to that 90-minute length. So you sit there with him watching a Christmas parade for five minutes. And therefore, that movie is my pick.
0: Oh, that's a great pick. And you know, Christmas could be happening during that entire time. <laughs> you don't know. I mean,
1: why not?
0: So uh, I literally just wrote Holiday Movie Mind Melter 2020 into Letterbox to see the list of movies that I did last year. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, We Wish You a Turtle Christmas. The scariest thing you will watch this holiday season. And uh, Rocky Four, great Christmas movie. Well, how about
1: uh, Alpha's Magical Christmas, the direct-to-video Power Rangers mm, special? Ah, uh,
0: Great. You also have Don Johnson's Dead Bang, Gary Daniels' uh, Riot, the Shion Sono kids film, Love and Peace. There's also a French film that I showed that unfortunately I wanted to recommend it in a video I was doing, but it seems to be completely unavailable anywhere. No one has put it out on DVD. It's called Paris Pickup from 1962 if you can get your hands on it it is amazing it's like on christmas night an ex-convict uh gets out of jail meets a beautiful uh married woman but then a dead body shows up and it's great there's an amazing twist in the movie as well so would highly recommend checking that out so again thanks for all the letters you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com what are we doing on our patreon this week well
1: speaking of bruce lee we watched the most famous film starring his son 1994's The Crow, but more importantly, Justin marathoned all four The Crow movies. That's right, there were three sequels to The Crow. Bet you didn't know that.
0: Hey, we didn't even talk about the fact that they've been trying to do a remake for two decades. They just can't get it off the ground for some baffling reason. Well,
1: you can hear about things that are not that on our Patreon episode. <laughs> you can hear, did you know that the final Crow film, The Crow, Wicked Prayer, from 2005, stars Edward Furlong as The Crow. I mean,
0: don't you want to hear me talk about that? Of course you do. So become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. So until then, my name is Justin Glute. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Oh, hello. It is I, Ebenezer Scrooge mandated by the court as part of my community service for defrauding billions of dollars out of the taxpayer and governmental systems to thank some of the new patron subscribers of the very unsuccessful financially important cinema club. I hate this holiday season, but I have to go out and do this. Having learned no lessons from being attacked by ghosts, I continue onward with my evil business practices. Here are some of the people that have recently donated to the Important Cinema Club. They include Benjamin J. Hedrick, Kyle McClurg, Ian Stranton, Matt, Bradley Dixon, Thomas, Josh Ferlin, Rob, Jesse Edwards, Christopher Nicastro, Jack Tse, James Knight, Jack Brown, Yerka Ralla, Enrico Sione. Thank you, I guess, for donating to the Important Cinema Club. I, Ebenezer Scrooge, do not care, for I am a billionaire. I'm not happy, I'm miserable, especially during this holiday season. I'm going to be attacked by ghosts again, like every season, but I don't change. I am a businessman, and a businessman is what I continue to be. Uh, The people at the Important Cinema Club would very much appreciate it, I guess, if you gave them a review. They said that if you write enough of them, maybe I will disappear and be destroyed, and perhaps if we all come together as human beings to take down the business class like I, Ebenezer Scrooge, (laughs) that's never going to happen. There will never be enough reviews to do that. I reign and own Santa Claus, Jeff Scullington, and even the Grinch. I, Ebenezer Scrooge, am all-powerful. We now return you to your regular schedule programming. Sylvester Stallone, he's a good man, right? Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. I'm going to go with uh, yes.
0: Because we recently watched, did we talk about it on the podcast? The documentary that came out about him just editing Rocky IV for the director's
1: cut? Oh yeah, so this is so great. If people haven't been following this... Sylvester Stallone just put out a new re-edit of Rocky IV, where he changed it a lot, made it more serious, took out the robot. Obviously, when I hear that he took out the robot, that sounds terrible. But what really matters is that to accompany this, there's a 90-minute YouTube video that you can watch. I don't know what it's called, but it's just 90 minutes of him in the editing suite talking about re-editing the movie. He takes you through the whole movie and he's just doing his Stallone philosophy, you know, just talking about everything he's learned in the 30 or 40 years since Rocky Four.
0: There's great moments where he's like, "Why, why am I making these changes now? Why don't I just do it at the moment? And then he kind of like soliloquies about, why can't you just, you know, apologize? Why does it have to come when you're on your deathbed? Just beautiful stuff.
1: And when he's talking about the... Dolph Lundgren Apollo Creed fight at the start of the movie. He talks a lot about how, you know, I just killed off Apollo Creed so flippantly. In the new cut, I have him put up more of a fight because I didn't appreciate it at the time how enormous this would have been. This would have been like the death of Ali. And I didn't I didn't respect that at the time. And that's the wisdom that age gives you.
0: He does say something that I hear every director who, you know, is a little bit older than when they were making their hit says, which is, I'm a much better director than I was back then. And oftentimes I'm like, uh, I don't know if that's the case, but okay. Well, I think
1: it's too bad that he doesn't get to direct anymore. I mean- Me and
0: you have talked about this endlessly. I don't understand if he wants to direct why he doesn't just I mean, do it. I I'm sure
1: it. he has the money. I'm sure somebody would- Pay for for a film by him, right? I mean,
0: the thing about Stallone is it's clear he has very thin skin. (laughs) I'm sure someone just said something that hurt his feelings, and he's like, "Well, fine, I don't want to direct that." I think when you
1: look at his filmography in recent years, though, like he's definitely taken a turn towards uh, the cash grab. All of those Escape Plan sequels, he's been making a lot of movies that just look like like real money jobs by really shady producers. Well, you
0: know, he's following his passions, as you can see on his Instagram, which I have right here up and wait, What's this? Into the storm. And he's wearing a hat that says Q on it.
1: Uh-oh! Oh, yeah, that was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I guess, you know, Sylvester Stallone has always been a conservative, but uh, there has been some debate online in recent years the extent to which he is a conservative he's always been kind of cryptic about whether or not he's a trump supporter although i think if you watch rambo last blood it's oh my god yeah come on rambo last blood is like the most racist movie since birth of a nation
0: that movie is awful like it made me feel like sad at the end <laughs> when it
1: finished yeah truly depressing i mean his brother frank stallone is one of the funniest mega guys on instagram
0: why hasn't stallone made that turn then why hasn't he been like yeah trump is good i
1: think maybe he just still has more of a career to protect
0: i mean just go all out but you didn't even say the punchline to that q thing. okay so
1: he posted a picture of him wearing a hat that had the QAnon logo the caption underneath it said into the storm so everyone kind of thought oh this is the mask off moment this is him admitting he's a big QAnon guy a day later he posted another photo that had him wearing a shirt that said quantum of solace on it and he said guys chill i was on a boat called the quantum of solace (laughs) that's why I had that's why I had this stuff like like Chill out, guys. Yeah,
0: follow your own path. Don't judge other people that may be obsessed with QAnon and other uh fringe psychotic things like that. It's funny
1: to me the idea that Sylvester Stallone would be interested in QAnon, because I mean Sylvester Stallone is one of the global elites, okay? The the man probably has a fortune of what a hundred million dollars or something. If
0: not even more than that.
1: Like Yeah, it's like he's the one eating babies. I mean, give me a break. I mean, if, if there's a QAnon, like if there's a if there's a Pizzagate conspiracy, he's in on it. He's at that level. Oh,
0: we need to talk about Sylvester Stallone's amazing office that's featured in the documentary. go right ahead. Well, it's covered in, of course, Rocky stuff. But then, you know, Eagle-eyed, super Stallone fans will notice that his real passion is also featured, surrounded by all this tacky Rocky bullshit. There's a little bust of Edgar Allan Poe, Stallone's favorite writer.
1: I wish he would make that Edgar Allan Poe biopic he's been talking about for years.
0: Twenty uh, years at this point. I think yeah. it would be.
1: I think it would be so beautiful because I do think Stallone is not without talent as a director. I think he's at least as good a director as Mel Gibson is.
0: He has a weird vision. <laughs> his good friend Mel Gibson. Good friend
1: Mel Gibson not coming back for The Expendables 4. Yeah,
0: but so, but you were saying you think he's a good director. Yeah, I think he's a
1: good director. I mean, you know, he definitely leans toward the tacky sometimes. I mean, like, some certain of his movies are a little hard to defend, but his movies sometimes have great energy and vitality and
0: they feel very personal like he's very invested in them as well
1: yeah exactly exactly there there are ideas that are consistent across his career uh, and he's an entertainer you know he knows how to put on a show so
0: the expendables for a movie that i did not know <laughs> existed until a couple days ago that's how uninterested i am in this kind of stuff coming out so first of all i go all right who's directing Oh, no, the guy who made Need for Speed in that real Navy SEALs movie, Act of Valor.
1: No, thank you. The whole point of the Expendables series is you get to see a bunch of old action icons together, like a super group, and there's a nostalgic thrill to that. So who's in
0: We got Jason Statham, he's back, Sylvester Stallone, of course, Dolph Lundgren, and then, oh, the pickings get uh, real slim. We got Randy Couture. Everybody loves Randy Couture, right? Who
1: the hell is Randy Couture, by the way? He he's is a,
0: a UFC fighter. He's been in all
1: the movies since the first one. Yeah, I, I know he's in them, but but he's the one who always kind of baffles me. It's like, what's what's his oh, thing? Oh, my
0: God. Sorry. I just saw a name here that I'm like, wow. So we also have Megan Fox. Uh, she's doing a lot of DTV stuff right now. You know, good for her for working. Eco from the Raid films. All right. Andy Garcia. Nothing says action movies like Andy Garcia. Tony Jaw. Okay. I like Tony Jaw. He always brings fun Tony to it. Tony Jaw.
1: Not bad. And
0: 50 Cent because everybody loves 50 Cent, well, right? Well, 50
1: Cent is a veteran of direct-to-video Stallone movies. So I'm glad to see him so in there. So
0: the name at the bottom of the list on Letterboxd is Dan Chupong, who you may not know his name, but he's the one who took over for Tony Jaw in Oonkbox 2 and Unkbox 3. Okay.
1: You know, I'm, I'm actually kind of getting sold on this now. Now that I hear Tony Jaw that guy and the guy from the raid. I'm starting to think, okay, maybe maybe there are going to be some good people in this. Uh I mean all the first 3 expendables movies were all bad, but hey, hope springs eternal.
0: <laughs> Fourth time's the charm, right? Yeah, that's right. But then I look at who directed it and I'm like, "Oh no." Is this
1: going to come out in theaters? That's the real question.
0: No. I don't think it'll get a Ugh. But people know what The Expendables is, so maybe?
1: I think it will. I think it will. Let's I mean,
0: see. the director's last film has not made it out in theaters, yes, because yes, it is the film that stars Jackie Chan and John Cena, which we've talked about recently, I think. Oh, yeah.
1: The, the movie that was shot in 2018 and has not been released. It's been on the shelf because possibly because of certain changes in government policy and China. Or maybe it's just too
0: good and they don't want to embarrass Jackie Chan. That's right.